Whoa. Where? <laughs> what was that? Words have escaped us tonight. <laughs> Alapalapin Mountains. Uh, Appalapin Mountains. The Alapalapin Mountains. Mountains. <laughs> Keep that in there. <laughs> Appalapin Mountains. Appalapin. Okay, I've not even had anything to drink. <laughs> found out what it's like to be electrocuted really do tell i had an ultrasound done and let me tell you when you have a neurostimulator implanted in your spine and you get near heavy machinery like that it's not a fun time speaking of heavy machinery not a fun time (laughs) don't operate any heavy machinery after you drink whatever's in that glass whatever is in this glass can you guess what it's It's bourbon colored (laughs) it's definitely not bourbon it's not bourbon no i don't know this is proper twelve. Proper not, twelve. Not a sponsor. We wish. Uh, yeah. yeah. You want to be a sponsor? That's definitely Conor McGregor, oh, UFC we'll, fighters. We'll we'll take out. Uh, family Irish whiskey. Irish whiskey. Welcome to this episode of History Told by Idiots. <laughs> I'm your host. <laughs> <sighs> Welcome to this episode. God, I miss y'all. Yeah, we've we've missed you guys. But the good thing about this episode is that as soon as we record this episode, we're recording another one. Well, it'll be just me recording another one. It's a special little thing that I put together for you, and I'm excited about it. But I don't want to spoil it. Definitely not. But just be looking for it in the next few days after this one comes out. So you're getting a two-for-one. Definitely. And then after that, we're actually, believe it or not, back on a regular schedule. Right. I know. It's insane right. that it's taken us this long to get back on a regular schedule i would call it insane i would call it that we are essential essential workers <laughs> yep we're essential workers full-time jobs no yep. i have another job on the weekends and then we do this and you know it just gets a little hard sometimes it does get plus a the hard. surgery not long ago but that's okay because uh, we appreciate each of you. It does. Get, it does get a little hard, especially when you work in the grocery business. And yeah. thankfully, we live in a pretty small area. But in the last week, our cases—I think that we've had more cases in the have. last week or so we than have. we've had the entire time. That we have, but that Corona has been a thing. I mean, it's definitely not as bad as it is in bigger oh, no. areas. But no, no. For our little mountain town, it's it it's is. still not good. So we were contacted by Logan Smith, who is one of our dear listeners, and he asked us if we would do a little research for him and talk about feuds. Feuds. Particularly the Tut-Everett War um, of Arkansas. Yeah, and we're sorry that it took three weeks since you requested it, but we wanted to make sure that we got what we could and we could properly bring it to you. We wanted to do it right. We wanted to do it right. So that was putting my library skills to yes. use. Uh, and yes, we are in Eastern Kentucky. And yes, the Hatfields and McCoys. We know is, what you're going to say before you yes, say it. Yes, <laughs> and the Hatfield and What did I just say? I don't know. The are you Hatfield, sure you should drink that whiskey? No, it wasn't. I said that was a stuttering, but... The Hatfield and McCoy feud is literally 45 minutes away <laughs> from where we're snapped. If we've never shown you pictures from the cemetery where some of the Hatfield-McCoy folks are buried, then uh, we will post those for you because, I mean, legit, it's 45 minutes away. Yeah. 40 minutes away. One, one of the, yeah, the site is literally 40 minutes from where we're sitting now. We'll see. Let's, let's put it this way. These deep, dark hills of eastern Kentucky. <sighs> Hold on, I feel like I need to. Yeah. I feel like I need to insert one a clip of one of my favorite songs right here. Yes. Hopefully through fair use, so you don't copyright strike me. In the deep dark hills of Eastern Kentucky, that's the place where I traced my bloodline. There were other problems. There were other family feuds that we want to bring to light. Because the Hatfield McCoys, even though I mean it's even historically important, well, and, and even though we're fairly confident that we could tell you things about it that you don't know, unless you're an expert on on the subject or you've researched it, we could probably tell you some stuff that you don't know. 
but it's kind of We feel like it's overdone. been generalized. Yes, it's been overdone. You know, even the History Channel come out. Yeah, with we a, had a miniseries. With, with a miniseries about it. So we wanted to bring you some stuff to the table that you didn't know about in addition to the Tut Everett War for Mr. Logan Smith. So, right. Logan, this one goes out to you. Thank right. you for your suggestion. And if you're sitting there thinking, wow, I know something that would be really cool for an episode of History Told by Idiots, all you have to do is reach out to us. On Instagram, Facebook. Or email. Or email. Just do it. We've mentioned one of the key players in this tale multiple times. But we don't want to dig too much in the history of this person tonight because... Because we kind of had some ideas about doing Appalachian Outlaws. I think maybe... Would you consider Devil John Ride an Appalachian Oh, he was definitely an Appalachian Outlaw. (laughs) I mean, like... But Appalachian outlaw, vigilante. He did protect local, these mountains. Local so. celebrity, yeah. former circus performer. Yeah. We'll get to that in a future episode. We may tell you a little bit about Devil John Rot. Right. But we're not going to tell you. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but we're not going right, to tell you right, right. too much about him just because we feel like he deserves a whole segment on an episode. Oh, yeah. Let me just kind of give a general geography lesson of where we're at <laughs> from y'all that ain't from this from neck y'all of the woods that ain't from this neck of the here woods. in good old eastern kentucky uh where we're from and where the story takes place at is southeastern kentucky now if you look at a map southeastern kentucky particular electric county not county perry county where the story takes place at bumps up against the border of western virginia pike county which is the largest county in the state of Kentucky, and where the Hatfield-McCoy feud was centered around, is our neighbor, and it bumps up against southwest West Virginia. Where this story takes place at is in Knott County. That gives you a general geography lesson brought to you by... Pretty much what he's saying is, it's in the hills. It's in the hills. The deep, the, dark hills. The deep, dark hills. <laughs> at the time Kentucky. that this happened, we were a pretty poor area then and now, yeah, then and now, hardy, yeah. we're hardy folks, and we were even hardier back then. Right, so, not going to steal your thunder. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just you added on. You're you're a pretty cool add on. Oh, thanks, you're thanks. Good. I appreciate you're good. that. You're a pretty cool add on. That's cool why add-on. I put a ring on it. You're a pretty yeah. cool DLC, Tessa. Yeah, pretty, <laughs> cool. pretty cool DLC. So, where my research come from is basically the author's family witnessed these events firsthand account. Noah M. Reynolds, the article called Mountain Feuds of Kentucky and the History of the Feuds of the Mountain Parts of Eastern Kentucky, uh, Lives of Noah and John Reynolds by Noah M. Reynolds. So it's from the perspective of the Reynolds family. If you hear me say a lot of first-person words, it's from the family's journal. We try not to just straight-up read stuff to you because uh, copyright. Yeah, copyright for one thing. But some of it is of importance. Some of these first-person accounts add historical perspective. The feud is the old Clave Jones and John Wright feud. So, again, Devil John Wright being in the middle of everything, this was pretty bloody. Devil John was a murderer. I mean, that should tell you a little something. something. This feud was fought under the leadership of Devil John Wright, who commanded one faction, and Clave Jones commanded the other faction. The feud started from the murder of a gentleman by the name of Linville Higgins, who was killed at a point where Hyman, and remember I said, you know, you have Knott County, Perry County, Electric County. Hyman is the seat of Knott County. Now, Tessa's like, yeah, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> where I went to college. Because <laughs> I just went to college right <laughs> yeah, up the road I there. went to college right yeah. up the road in Pippa Passes. Uh, Hyman, like I said, is the county seat of Knott County. The man Higgins was killed by three men, all which were unidentified, except for one. And his name was uh, Mr. W.M.S. Wright, who later was a gentleman who started trouble between himself and one of the Reynolds family, which ended up resulting in his own death. The Higgins killing, there were several indictments made. Wright and others refused to submit to the law. Of course. Of course. (laughs) And a gentleman by the name of Dolphin Drawn, a deputy sheriff in Knott County at the time, organized a band of men, about 30 in number, and marched into the hills of Letcher County, Kentucky. Oh, that's a bad move. That's a bad move. (laughs) To apprehend these parties accused of killing Higgins. Listen, if you come into the hills of Letcher County and you want to hide, they ain't going to find you. (laughs) They ain't going to find you. Especially Especially not those Especially during this time. Yeah. On their way there, an important event called the Daniels Hill Fight. On their way there, they were ambushed at a point called Daniel Hills by... 
Devil John and his band in a general fight ensued in which several men were wounded, one of which, a man by the name of Talt Hall, received a severe and painful wound in his shoulder. He belonged to the right faction, and a man by the name of Short, who was with the drawn side, was shot with a shotgun. Ouchie. What was significant about this is, at the time, no one could figure out who did the shot with the shotgun. But, Devil John Wright's preferred mode of shooting was with a shotgun. In the fight, not only were men shot, but several horses were also shot. One of which, a very fine horse belonging to Dolph Drawn, was killed on the spot, which later on John Wright paid for regretting the killing of a fine horse. Oh, I love so, it. So, killing men. Killing men's fine. Don't touch the horses. Don't touch the horses. Horses not good. Don't mm-hmm. touch the don't, horses. Don't kill the horses. Uh, don't kill the men either. Yeah, don't kill the men Just either, don't but don't anybody. kill the fine horses. Mm-mm. The Drawn party, being stampeded, retreated in bad order going back across the hills to Knott County. Each man by himself. On the return home, they joined Clay Jones, refusing to accompany Drone on his raid into Letcher County because Drone insisted on making the raid on horseback in cavalry form. This was significant because Clay, being an old mountain man, refused to fight in a organized fashion. He was an old feudist, as the article says, and he understood the nature and cunningness of John Wright. And so he knew by meeting John Wright face to face, it was going to end up bad. Knowing the cunningness of John Wright, Talk Hall, and WMS Wright, and others of his gang. After banding under the leadership of Clay Jones, another raid was planned. Jones advising and instructing his men as how he would conduct his warfare, going after Wright in the name of the law. In the name of the law. In the name of the law. While Wright is shrewd. A craftsman has ever commanded a bunch of men in our mountains, like I said, these mountains. These are quotes. These are quotes. Had his men organized in the same manner. So you kind of had posses, I guess is what you would call them. This group over here was a posse, formed a, formed a gang. And this group over here formed a gang. So Clay Jones and John Wright each had... Re- this is what I found funny about this story, by the way. That Jones and Wright each had rewards for the others signed by the governor of Kentucky. Oh my gosh. So they both had... <laughs> they both had a price wanted, on their head. Uh, they both had prices on their That's heads. That's hilarious. Clay Jones, mustering his men together, set out to capture or kill John Wright and his men. Later, with guns and ammunition, traveling during the night... A very funny story about this is because Jones and Wright would travel under night, and it said that even at one point during this feud, that they would cross each other at nighttime and not even know and it. And they wouldn't know it. And they didn't know it. Holy moly. And hiding in the mountains. It's like day. it's like in episodes of Scooby Doo with all the doors in the hallway and everybody's running and, and they poke their heads out and yeah, they just miss each other. Except this is like a more deadlier yeah. version of that. This is a more deadly version yeah. <laughs> of that. <laughs> they would travel during the night and hide in the valleys of the mountains during the day. Wright retreated to his fort in Knott County, which he called Fort Wright. Jones and his men now on. Failing to find Wright, returned home in the same manner as they had come, watching for Wright during the day and traveling by night. So, to sum it up, the Jones party was looking for Wright. The Jones party was looking for the Wright party. The Wright party was looking for, for the, the Jones, Jones party. party. And they looked for each other at nighttime, so they just passed each other, but didn't know it, and retreated back to their forts. There's right. a summation for That's a summation. <laughs> so Jones, on arriving home in Knott County, learned that Wright was also home at the head of the Elkhorn Creek, which was in Deer Road. Letcher County. Letcher County. Wright, having failed to find Jones on his raid, had returned home also. Jones takes his men and traveling by night and laying up by day, as he had done on his first raid, arrived at Fort Wright in Knott County at night, arranging themselves as best they could, concealing themselves behind large trees, large rocks, and such other obstructions that they could find waited for daylight to come so they could ambush. On the first sight of a man called Bill Bates stepping out of the fort, Jones and his men opened up fire on him. Talt Hall and several men who were in the fort held Jones off until John Wright, who was <laughs> who was stopping by a lady friend's house. A lady friend. <laughs> yes. Some 300 yards away came to the rescue. Jones ambushed this fort. Until he could finish his business. Until John Wright could finish his business and come and rescue them. Oh, no. The shooting lasted for two hours. Reports uh, said that it was like a continuous roar down the holler. 
There was so much gunfire. Jones, seeing his helpless condition to either kill or capture any of Wright's gang, retreated. Strangely, no one was killed, but some were slightly wounded. Devil John, pursuing Jones, came up with him on Mill Creek. Mill Creek is at Rock House Fork of the Kentucky River. Here, a desperate battle was fought in which John lost a man. Wright had his man carried away and buried, as it was the way each side of every faction of the feud to bury their dead and let nobody know it if possible. That's interesting. So yeah, that is so, interesting. So that their graves couldn't be desecrated. You talked about John Wright and his lady friend. You yeah. know how many kids John Wright had? It was like 13, wasn't it? 31. Oh, I was off. He fathered 31 yeah, children. but he took care of every oh, single diff- one of them, didn't he? He did, by several different women. By 31 different children. Women. I think it was four women. Okay, each side seeing the great danger of what was happening and the impossibility of capturing the other decided to rest. Decided to call it quits for the night. One of uh, Jones's men, Bill Cook, surprised and captured a gentleman by the name of Washcraft near the mouth of Millstone Creek. There's a millstone up above where Tessa was raised. Summoning J. Wash Adams as a guard, he put Craft on a horse behind Adams and started on their way to Hindman Jail. Again, Hyman was the seat of Knott County. Arriving at a point on Rock House just below the mouth of Beaver Dam Creek, Craft snatched a 38 revolver from Adams and fired five shots in succession killing Cook instantly, liberating himself and making his way back to and joining his friend, Devil John Wright. Wright, upon hearing of the capture of Kraft, mustered 18 men and went into pursuit of Cook. He wasn't just going to let him be taken. He He was going after him. He was going after him. Going away to cut him off, they came across parties carrying Cook's dead body. Learning Kraft had killed Cook, he went back with his men to Fort Wright. This feud lasted on and on for several years. One and two men meeting at a time. Dueling sort of thing. Dueling sort of thing, yeah. Fighting with guns and pistols, generally to the end. Continuing on and on, other troubles grew out of this field until 150 men or more were killed. I didn't know that it was that many men. And so it went this way until it just kind of fizzled out over time. But it's strange to learn this. All parties tried in court for this trouble got off. Of course they did. Yes. That's how we did things in the mountains back then. That's how we did things in the mountains. We protected our own, even if our own were murderers. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's the truth. So, that's all I have. That was interesting. the Clabe and Wright feud. Listen, I can't wait to get to dig in a little bit more to the history of Devil John Wright. I can't either. I can't either. You know, he's one of those legends that you always hear about growing up. He was known as the Tall Sycamore. Or the Law of Pine Mountain. The Law of Pine Mountain. We'll be telling you a little bit more about the Law of Pine Mountain in later stories. And yes, there's murder, mayhem, a little bit of mystery. All of it kind of rolled into one. He's an interesting fellow. I'm going to save the Tut Everett War for last, since that is what Mr. Smith suggested that we talk about. Instead, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Turk-Jones feud, which was known as the Slicker War. So, let's travel to the Ozark Mountains. This is actually sometimes known as the Ozark Mountain feud. This feud carried on much like... More of the more famous Appalachian feuds, like the Hatfield and McCoy feud. It encompassed several counties in Missouri, just like the Hatfield and McCoy feud. Encompassed like the entirety of Pike County, parts of West Virginia, and neighboring counties in Kentucky. You get the gist. So it was sort of like that. It encompassed the Missouri counties of Benton and Polk. So Benton County at this time was newly organized. There were two families. I can't give you a geography lesson on Missouri. No, we can't give you a Missouri geography lesson. There were two families, the Joneses and the Turks. Both of them migrated from, you're getting ready to see a theme, because we just talked about a feud that happened in the state of... Kentucky. The Joneses migrated from... Kentucky. Kentucky. Very good. (laughs) And the Turks migrated from our neighboring state, Tennessee. Tennessee. Colonel Hiram came to Benton County with his wife. I I promise you all, there's law and order in this area now. Well, now, in 2020, there's law and order. Now we're fine. (laughs) Come visit. It's, it's, It's all good now. No more feuds. Colonel Hiram came to Benton County with his wife. They had four sons, James, Thomas, Nathan, and Robert. They settled in an area known as Judy's Gap. The Jones family settled along the Palme de Terre River, which Palme de Terre means potato. 
Jones and his sons sort of had a, a liking for some things a lot of the mountain folk around here did at the time, which was gambling and horse racing. They were also suspected of counterfeiting. So gambling, horse racing, counterfeiting, they were said to be sort of coarse maybe even illiterate because they never actually signed their names as their names. They sort of just made a a mark and went with that. Colonel Turk, as he was called, Hiram Turk, the father of the four boys, served in the Tennessee militia and was said to have been full of buckshot. Thousands of little tiny pellets. He was a businessman when he lived in Tennessee and opened up a general store and saloon. His family was generally described as being courteous and well-educated, that's in comparison to the Jones family. Like we said, they were described as being coarse and illiterate, and the Turk family was described as being courteous and well-educated. On the flip side of that, they also had a reputation for being quarrelsome and violent and overbearing. And that's a direct quote from A Sketch of the History of Benton County by James H. Lay. So when did the tensions arise between these two families? This started on Election Day in 1840, when Andy Jones walked into Hiram's store, which was being used as the polling place, and Jones started an argument with James Turk about a horse race bet. A fight ensued, and Hiram and some of the other sons joined in, and his son Tom pulled out a knife. No one was seriously injured at this point, but the Turks were charged with inciting a riot and committing assault, even though it was his own store. (laughs) Earlier that same year, James Turk had attacked a man by the name of John Graham, seemingly unprovoked, near Judy's Gap. And Graham was a prominent member of the community, and on the day following the attack, he personally wrote a note to the Justice of the Peace, and I'll read you this note. February the 19th day, 1840. Mr. Wisdom, sir, please come forthwith to my house and fetch your law books and come as quick as you can as I have been laywayed by James Turk and smartly wounded so that I can't come to your house and is afraid that he will escape. John Graham. A warrant was issued for James Turk's arrest and a posse was formed to come and arrest him, but Turk refused to go to Graham's house for the trial. Graham refused to be in Turk's presence and go to Turk until he was officially disarmed. So Justice Wisdom ordered James to be disarmed, and when he stepped in to assist, Hiram intervened, and Tom Turk drew his gun on the officers of the court. The Turks and their friends took James home. Obviously, this is not good. When you draw your weapons on the justice responsible for conducting your trial. Right. After this happened and the Turks drew weapons on the officers of the law, a warrant was then issued against the Turks for springing James from custody because they did just kind of take him home. Uh Justice Wisdom had James bound over for the assault of John Graham, Tom for the rescuing and springing of James, and Hiram for the rescue and threatening of John Graham. It was all a big mess. Can you kind of understand where I went with that? Yeah, the dumbfounded look. Everybody did. It's like everybody was trying to help the other member of their family, but in doing so, they all kept breaking the law worse and worse and worse and getting more into trouble. Exactly. Hiram, in court, accused the justice of malicious prosecution, and the judge fined him $20. According to James H. Lay, who we quoted earlier, these proceedings aided in planting the animosity that took shape in this war, which would come to be known as the Slicker War. That was sort of an aside, sort of a backstory of why there were tensions in the first place. Now let's travel back to that election day where the Turks were charged with inciting a riot at the polling place. After this happened, a few days after, Tom, James, and Robert Turk were indicted for inciting a riot, and Hiram and James were indicted for assaulting Andy Jones. In December, the three boys were convicted of starting the riot, and they were fined $100. Hiram and James were supposed to go to trial, but it was delayed until April 1841. Mm-hmm. So the circuit court convened on April 3rd, 1841, and a prominent, respected citizen of the community, whose name was Abraham Noel, was the chief witness against the Turks. So Noel was on his way to court with Julius Sutliff, who was a neighbor of the Turks, when James Turk assaulted him. 
Noel, in self-defense, grabbed Sutliff's gun and killed James Turk. So shot and killed James Turk. And when that happens... And when that happened, all hell broke loose. All hell breaks loose. Noel was afraid for his life. Because he knew that the Turks would seek retribution for killing James. He fled the area, and eventually his guilty conscience got the best of him, so he did return to the area and turn himself in. He turned himself in in September of that year. He was arrested and posted bail awaiting trial in April 1842. Noel was acquitted, though, possibly on the strength of testimony against James Turk. So, one witness that saw this happen, his name was John Prince, and he testified, quote, I heard James Turk say that Mr. Noel was a main witness and never should give an evidence against them, and that he intended to take the, and it blanks out the bad words, <laughs> which is what I'm going to do, too, because we're a family-friendly show, yeah. that he intended to take the, the D, old son of a B, off his horse and whip him so he could not go to court. Turk further said that if they took the case to Springfield, he would have him, Noel, fixed so he would never get there. So Noel was going to testify against him. He was ambushed by Turk, and then he was shot by Mr. Noel in self-defense. Okay? Right. So during that spring of 1841, when James was killed, let's go back to Hiram and Tom. They had filed a number of nuisance lawsuits against their neighbors, They don't seem like they would be very good neighbors. Let me just say, I wouldn't want to live next to the the Turk family. No. So James was killed. Tensions rise between the Turks and the Joneses. Everything heats up. Pretty much what happened is that everybody in the area took sides for one family or the other. So during the spring, a relative of the Joneses... James Morton, had killed a sheriff in Alabama in 1830 and fled to Benton County after the murder. On May 20th, 1841, a bounty hunter by the name of McReynolds brought indictment papers to the attention of the Benton County Sheriff. The sheriff was unconvinced that the evidence was sufficient to warrant Morton's arrest. So what does that actually go back to? Well, the sheriff probably didn't want to make the Jones family angry. Right. Because, like we said, retribution was was a real thing. If you made one family angry, it was like the entire community that was for that family was all of a sudden against you. It was a very divided area. But the reward for Morton's capture was $400. That was a lot of money. That was a lot of money. And McReynolds was determined to bring Morton to justice. So he did the absolute worst possible thing that he could have done. He recruited the Turk family to help him. That's going to go over like a turd in a punch bowl. That's my statement. (laughs) So McReynolds decided that he was going to recruit the Turk family to assist him in bringing Morton in for capture. They were successful. They captured him. They turned him over. McReynolds took him back to Alabama, and he was, guess what? Acquitted. (laughs) And eventually returned to Missouri. But when this happened, Hiram Turk was charged with kidnapping. So what I'm trying to explain to you here is that throughout time, it was little things that eventually built up and it made one family get angry at the other. And then the other family would do something that would anger the other. The Jones would do something. It's exactly, it is a snowball effect. The Jones family got aggravated at the Turks. The Turks did something in retribution. And even though it may be small, these things built and built and built and built. And the animosity escalated between the two families. Andy Jones and his family vowed revenge on the Turks for not just taking Morton into custody, but for pretty much everything. And in early July 1841, Jones entered into an agreement with some of his friends that they were just going to kill Hiram Turk. Let's just kill him and be done with it. At this point, there hadn't been that much bloodshed. Of course, we lost James Turk. Besides his death, it really, like, there was some bloodshed. But it wasn't really that bad. Mm -mm. Yet. It escalated very quickly. 
after Andy Jones and some friends decided to kill Hiram Turk. They drew up a bonding contract among all of the co-conspirators, and anyone who divulged that secret plot to kill Hiram would be killed himself. On July 17th, Hiram Turk was ambushed and shot from the brush as he rode through a hollow. When he was shot, he fell off of his horse, and sources say he exclaimed, I'm a dead man. He was attended by Dr. Daly, but he never recovered. He lingered for a few weeks, and then he died at his home on August 10, 1841. Now, the circuit court was still in session. Andy Jones and several of his friends were indicted for the murder of Hiram Turk. On December 9, 1841, Andy Jones was acquitted. The jury decided there was insufficient evidence to convict him because everybody had been sworn to secrecy. So nobody knew, right. except for that that group of people that they were planning on killing him. One of the friends, Jabez Harrison, later confessed that he and Andy, along with three other men, were hiding in the brush. He accused Henry Hodges of firing the shot. Some of the co-conspirators, including Hodges, then fled the area. The unsuccessful attempt to convict Andy Jones of Hiram's murder is when the so-called Slicker War began in earnest. Because even though these families had been feuding for years, it wasn't really that bloody until the death of Hiram. That sort of was the... The straw that broke the camel's back, you could say. The Turks were not satisfied with how things had been handled in the courtroom. They decided to take justice into their own hands and extract their own revenge. They told everybody who would listen they wouldn't be satisfied until they drove the Joneses out of the Ozarks with their own sort of brand of frontier justice. This is when the true Slicker War began. Why is this called the Slicker War? Well. Because of slicking. Do you know what slicking is? Oh, you're acknowledging my presence? I'm acknowledging your presence. Oh, okay. <laughs> Do you know what slicking is? Uh, no. Okay, well, good. I didn't want you to know what it is. Mm. It's a form of punishment that was common in the Ozarks, probably brought over by settlers who migrated from the great state of Tennessee. There was so much vigilantism going on. People took the law into their own hands during this time. So... The Turks did the same thing. They decided to take the punishment for the Jones family in the, into their own hands. And not just the Jones family, but anybody who aligned with them. As far as slicking, the victim was captured and then tied to a tree and whipped with a hickory switch. One way or the other, they were going to get a confession or they were going to beat somebody to death is what it amounted to. So they would tie the person up and they would whip them until they would confess. And what they really wanted to know was who actually killed Hiram Turk. Right. That's what they wanted to know. Who actually killed their kinfolk. Right. And I, don't their know, kinfolk. And I don't know who will listen to this, but if you've ever been hit with a hickory switch. Y'all ever been switched before? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes this distinct whistling noise. Yes, I do have experience will be <laughs> with the hickory switch. Josh was a rule breaker when he was oh, young. Yes. And that's what the mountain folk used to do to you whenever you misbehaved. Yes. Now you're not allowed to do that kind of thing. But back in the good old day, it was... Yes, uh, a mountain holler mama would still do it. Yeah, I know, right? So each side formed their own alliances. Andy Jones had made this bonding agreement, like we said, with his friends to kill Hiram Turk, which they did do. And Tom Turk made a similar bonding agreement with 30 or so of his friends. To make it more palatable, more accepted by the public, they declared their purpose in creating this band of folks was to drive out horse thieves, counterfeiters, and murderers. So who were they talking about, I wonder. I wonder. <laughs> hmm, could it be the Turk family? So the Joneses, they formed their own alliance. They called themselves the Anti-Slickers. As it turns out, really the Anti-Slickers were no better than the actual Slickers because they weren't above using the exact same tactic to get what they wanted. In one of the detailed accounts given in a sketch of the history of Benton County, you almost need 
sort of like a scorecard to keep tally of who had retribution against who and who fought with who and who did what, and it just continued and continued. The feud drew members of the community not even related to either side into the fray. The slickings, this is a direct quote, the slickings threw the whole county into excitement, and the feeling was so intense that the entire community took sides in sentiment with one party or the other, and many good citizens openly favored each side and gave them aid in their lawsuits. So, eventually the Turks did get their revenge for Abraham Knowles' acquittal for killing James Turk. On the morning of October 18, 1842, they shot him as he was coming out of his house to get some water. But even after that happened, the slickings continued. Each side, like we said earlier, was determined to drive the other side out of the county for good, out of the Ozarks for good. But eventually, the feud did end, or I guess you could say it just died down. The state finally stepped in and arrested 38 slickers for their part in attacking an innocent farmer whose name was Samuel Yates. But the case never went to trial. Tom Turk was later killed by one of his own posse members. Andy Jones ended up fleeing to Texas. Nathan Turk followed him. When Jones was arrested for stealing horses, Nathan's testimony helped to convict him, and he was found guilty and hanged. After helping to convict Jones, Turk would go on later to be killed in a gunfight in Shreveport, Louisiana. Mrs. Turk and her one remaining son, Robert, just kind of got tired of the whole thing and made the smartest decision they could have made and returned to good old Kentucky. According to James H. Lay, she is said to have been deeply deeply deplored by the violence of her sons and husband. Her share in this bloody drama is unwritten, but it is hard to conceive of a heavier burden of woe than fell to her lot. Poor lady. The practice of slicking itself was picked up by other would-be vigilante groups. Some residents of Lincoln County, which is in the eastern part of Missouri, used slicking to rid their communities of horse thieves and counterfeiters, but unfortunately... With the good, there comes the bad. Several innocent people lost their lives due to this, too. Eventually, the practice of slicking faded away, thank goodness. And that is really what ended the Slicker Wars of the Ozarks. So there was that little piece of... History. That was that little piece of history for you. And now we get to the part that started this whole snowball effect of feuds. The Tut Everett War of Marion County... Arkansas. Does this involve people of Kentucky? How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) Were you just being funny? Because that's it actually does. Yeah, I was actually being funny. (laughs) It actually uh, does. Yeah. Good job. Oh Lord. Hold on to your butt, okay? Hold on to your butt. Hold on to your butt. The Tut Everett War of Marion County, Arkansas started in eighteen forty four and eventually ended up taking the lives of a reported fourteen people. Most feuds in the old west were centered around land rights and water rights. But with this particular feud, it was born of politics. Just sort of like the last one that we talked about started in a polling place, but it wasn't really about politics. This is about politics. Because it started with political ambition. The feud itself raged for many years, from 1844 to 1850. And... It increased in violence the longer that it went on, like we said, taking the lives of at least 14 people. So it sort of goes all the way back to when Marion County itself was created. Arkansas legislature created Marion County in 1836, and from the get-go, the Tut family, who, by the way, were associated with the Whig Party, Woot Woot Henry Clay, they were there from the beginning of the formation of the county. And then you had the Everett family, who were part of the Democratic Party. They didn't like each other from the beginning. Part of the reason they didn't like each other was the politics. But the Tuts lived in Searcy County, and they were not pleased when portions of Searcy County were given over to create Marion County. But the Tut family controlled most of the area's politics from day one. The Everetts were already living in the area, too, and they controlled the majority of the law and authority. So you had one family, the Tuts, 
who controlled the politics. You had the other family, the Everett's, who controlled the law and authority. You can see that this is not going to end well already. It's never good when a family has that much say in something as important as A, the politics, or B, the law enforcement and the authority in the area. The Everett family were originally from... (laughs) Where, Josh? I I don't know. Kentucky. They were originally (laughs) from Kentucky. They, quote, were composed of tall and powerful men. Ooh. Ooh la la. Tall and powerful men. So they weren't coddles. So (laughs) So they weren't coddles. Sorry, dude. Sorry. Short of stature, big of heart. That's you. That's you, baby. Yep. Short of stature, big of heart. My family just imagined a bunch of Gimleys (laughs) running around. They're just hobbits. Mm. So the Everett family was comprised of, at the time, John, Cimarron, who they called Sim, Jesse, and Bart Everett. Then you had the Tuts. Like we said, they lived in Searcy County, which part of that county was given over to make the new Marion County. The Tuts were originally from, from guess where? Not Kentucky, but our neighbors, Tennessee. It all goes back to Kentucky and Tennessee. And they settled in the community of St. Joe. They were headed up by the father of the family, R.B. Tut. And he had three sons, Ben Hansford, who they called Hamp, and David Casey, The family, they were known gamblers, horse racers. They had a fondness for the bottle, and they had a fondness for fighting. Hamp owned a grocery store and a saloon, which was the only public house in the county and the most popular spot for the whiskey drinkers of the region. This is a recipe for disaster already, you can tell. Also living in the area was the King family. Sometimes they get left out, at least of the title of the feud, but they had a big part in it too. Some people know this feud as the Tut Everett King War, or some sort of variation of that. But you had the King family, which was comprised of brothers Old Billy, James, Hosea, and Solomon. So the brothers themselves of the King family didn't really get caught up in the feud. It was their children that got caught up in this feud. Billy and Hosea's sons did. Billy had Jack, Loomis, and Dick, and Hosea had Bill and Tom. Kind of like a sense of the father thing. Right. Like we said, this mostly goes back to politics. The Kings were also from the Whig Party, and they aligned themselves very quickly with the Tut family. Voter preference really didn't have much to do with ideas of either party. It was mostly like if the man that you wanted was in the Whig party and you knew that you could get away with stuff while he was in office, that's who you supported. If you knew the Democratic candidate and you thought you could get away with stuff if he was in office, you were a Democrat. That's how politics were back in the day. It was what you could get from the person in office is what swayed your vote. At the time, there were approximately 300 voters in the county, I mean, it didn't take no time at all that every resident had pretty much aligned itself with one side or the other as far as the Whig Party or the Democratic Party. You can imagine elections became very heated. Heck, we know that they still do today, but this was a different sort of time. People didn't take to their cell phones, to social media, to hash out arguments. People took to getting a gun out or getting a knife out, or taking their fists out, and settling differences that way. Question. Yes. How do you take your fist out? Like this. Oh. Was that a good demonstration? I mean, I stand corrected, audience. I was just in showing the proper way of taking your fist out. So, <laughs> Thank you, thank you, folks. I'll be here all week. And for for the low price of forty nine ninety five, you too can learn how to take your fist out and defend yourself. Not a sponsor. Please sign up for my exclusive online course. Patreon.com slash history told by idiots. Oh, shame. Shame. (laughs) Anyway, so 300 voters in this extremely heated election year. Everybody took sides. In the midst of all this rising tension, they decided to hold a public debate, which probably wasn't the best thing that they could have done, but people need to be informed, just like now. Do your research before you vote, people, and make sure that you do vote. PSA, exercise your right to vote. It's cool. The cool kids do it. They decided to have this public debate in the town of Yellville in 1844. And Yellville soon erupted into Yellsville. <laughs> Crickets. 
Anyway, it soon erupted into this big, violent heck of a brawl between all these spectators. It's suspected that this is what became known as the Tut Everett War, or at least the start of it. There were no guns used or anything like that in this particular fight. Instead, participants used uh, rocks, anything they could get their hands on, just their fists themselves. They took out their fists and and they... Had words with each other. Only after one of the Tut followers, a man named Alfred Burns, struck Sim Everett in the head with a hoe and thought he was dead, did the melee settle down. So Sim was laying on the ground. Burns decided, uh oh, I am out of here and made a quick retreat. There was a lot of bloodshed, but Sim was not killed, and there were actually no serious injuries that came from this whatsoever. However, After this happened, both sides began to always walk around armed, and a series of lawsuits were filed that would last for years and years. This is the start of the real bloodshed here. Periodically, what would happen is that gunplay, usually fueled by alcohol and anger, it's a combination you don't need, gunplay, fist fights became the norm. It further increased the ill will. The county was split, like we said, split pretty much down the middle, and it pitted one side of the county against the other, and the ill will was just terrible between the two different sides. It only increased as this thing went on. The feud itself came to a head on October 9th of 1848. A shootout erupted before a town meeting in Yellville, and when the smoke cleared... Several men were dead, including Sim Everett. Two days later, the Everetts and their supporters ambushed the Kings and killed Old Billy and his son Loomis. Young Billy King and another man who went by the name of Cherokee Bob were seriously wounded, but they escaped. The following summer, things were getting really out of hand. The current sheriff was named Jesse Mooney. And he wasn't really affiliated with one side or the other. He sort of wanted to be the one that laid down the law and that was it. Mm-hmm. And he decided that he was going to actually lay down the law and take care of this feud. So on July 4th, 1849, himself and Constable Adams, they deputized several men, took them into the fold, and they made plans to, quote, clean up the county. In the meantime, the Tut faction was gathering in the saloon, and the Everett's and their supporters were taking cover behind a building across the street from the saloon. So Mooney comes in before he even gets a chance to finish talking to his newly deputized citizens. A gunfight erupts, and it lasts the whole afternoon. It is a long, drawn-out gunfight. So after all of the ammunition was gone, I mean, they used everything they had, the two factions continued to fight out in the street with sticks, bricks, rocks, knives fists, anything that they could get their hands on. And when it was all said and done, ten men, including Jack King, Bart and Sim Everett, Davis, Ben, Lunsford Tut, they were all dead. More were wounded, some of them badly. Dave Sinclair, who was a friend of the Tuts and the alleged killer of Sim Everett, rode out of town right after the fight was over. However, a posse of Everett's friends found him the next morning and shot him. So even he didn't escape. So Jesse Everett had been in Texas during this gunfight. When he heard of the deaths of his brothers, he returned straight back to Arkansas to avenge their killings. So the violence didn't stop there. He made several attempts at assassinating Hamp Tut, but he did it unsuccessfully. There was mayhem. The county was in mayhem. Sheriff Mooney sent his son, Tom, to Little Rock to ask for help from the governor. He wanted the state to step in and give him some kind of aid because he couldn't control it himself with his band of citizen deputies, just regular men. So the young man, Tom, he sent him to the governor. He was successful in requesting assistance, but he never made it back to Marion County. After several weeks, the carcass of his horse washed up in the mouth uh, of the creek, but his body itself was never found. So somebody didn't want the law to get involved with that. Fast forward a little bit to September in 1849. Arkansas's governor at the time was John Sheldon Rowan, and he sent General Allen Wood to Marion County to investigate and see if they needed to bring militia in to control these factions. He came in and saw the complete general lawlessness in this area, and he raised the militia in Carroll County. They marched in, and they relieved Sheriff Mooney of his duties. Poor dude. He tried. He tried real hard. 
He even lost his kid because of it. Mm-hmm. Governor Roan ordered that the Everett's and their supporters be arrested. So soon several men were arrested and martial law stepped in. It lasted in the county for six weeks, but when winter arrived, the troops were removed, and within weeks of their departure, the Everett supporters broke their friends out of jail. <laughs> oh, the following year, in September of 1850, Hamp Tut was eventually shot and killed. And after that happened, the remaining Everett's just sort of moved on. Everybody was tired of this bloodshed and violence. Over nothing. Right, and so over politics. Over politics. And so eventually the Everett's moved on. Everybody sort of went their own little, I guess, merry way. But something else happened as a direct effect of this. Davis Tut was an Old West gambler and a soldier. He was the son of Hamp Hansford Tut that we just mm-hmm. talked about, born in Yaleville, Arkansas. When he was a boy is when all this happened. He was... He enlisted in 1862 in Company A, the 27th Arkansas Infantry Regiment, and fought for the Confederate Army. Where you would know his name from is the Wild Bill Hickok Davis Tut Shootout. This gunfight occurred on July 21st, 1865, in the town square of Springfield, Missouri, between Wild Bill Hickok and Gambler Davis Tut. It is one of the very few recorded instances in the Old West of a one on one. Pistol, quick draw, duel. You see it in the movies, but it wasn't actually a commonplace thing that is documented in history. This is one of the instances in which it actually was. And it inspired, if you've ever seen it in a movie or in a show, it was inspired by this. Where they, you know, they take so many paces, they turn and they draw and they shoot. Tut and Hickok were both gamblers. And at one point they'd been friends despite the fact that Tut had been a Confederate veteran and Hickok was a scout for the Union Army, so Confederate against Union. But still, they had been friends. They eventually fell out over women, as so many do. (laughs) There were reports that Wild Bill Hickok had fathered an illegitimate child with Tut's sister, and Tut had been observed paying a, quote, great deal of attention to Wild Bill's paramour, Susanna Moore. Probably a bad mistake. So Hickok started to refuse to play in any card game that included Tut, and Tut retaliated by supporting other local card players with advice and money in this dedicated attempt to bankrupt Wild Bill. It eventually came to a head during a game of poker at the Lion House Hotel. Hickok was playing against several other local gamblers while Tut stood nearby, loaning money as needed and encouraging and coaching them on how to beat Wild Bill. The game was being played for very high stakes at the time, and Hickok had done really well. He won about $200 in 2020. This amounts to about 3000 or so, maybe a little over $3,000. Uh-huh of what was essentially Tut's money because he was giving it to the other players to beat Wild Bill. Tut was irritated, obviously, by his loss, and he reminded Wild Bill of a $40 debt from a past horse trade. Hickok just shrugged it off, said, here you go, and paid him the sum, but Tut was still unappeased. He then claimed that Hickok owed him an additional $35 from a past poker game. Hickok said, I think you're wrong, Dave. It's only $25. I have a memorandum in my pocket. So Tut, he had a large following at the Lion House, and encouraged by his armed friends and associates, he decided to take this opportunity to truly humiliate Wild Bill. In the midst of this argument over the $10 difference in the debt, Tut grabbed one of Hickok's most prized possessions off of the table. That would be his Waltham Repeater Gold Pocket Watch. And he announced that he would keep it as collateral until Hickok paid the full 35 Wild Bill was shocked, but he was outnumbered and outgunned. He was angry. He was unwilling to resort to violence. He just demanded that Tut put the watch back on the table. And Tut just replied with what is reported as an ugly grin and left with the watch. Aside from publicly humiliating Hickok and taking the property, Tut's demand for a collateral on a debt from a fellow professional card player implied he thought that Hickok was a bad gambler trying to avoid his debts. 
This was obviously an insult. So the feud between the two of them sort of went on and on, and eventually Tut did something stupid. He started bragging that he was going to wear the watch in the middle of the town square the next day. And Hickok replied, He shouldn't come across that square unless dead men can walk. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And Tut, the next morning, decided to, I guess, do what he had said that he was going to do. There were negotiations, but they failed. The next day, he arrived at town, 10 a.m., with Hickok's watch hanging from his waist pocket. Hickok had went back to his room that night and oiled up his gun and cleaned it and loaded it up. He knew what was coming. The word quickly spread that Tut was making good on his pledge to humiliate Hickok, reaching Hickok's own ears within an hour. According to the testimony of Eli Armstrong, Hickok met Tut at the square and discussed the terms of the watch's return. Tut demanded $45. Armstrong tried to convince Tut to accept the original 35 and negotiate for the rest later, but Hickok was still adamant that he only owed him 25 Tut then held the watch in front of Hickok and said that he would accept no less than 45. Both then said they did not want to fight and went for a drink together, but Tut left soon after, still wearing the watch, returning again to the square. After a few minutes before 6 p.m., Hickok was seen calmly approaching the square from the south with his Colt revolver in his hand. His armed presence caused the crowd to scatter. Tut was left alone in the northwestern corner of the square. At a distance of about 75 yards, Hickok stopped, faced Tut, and called out, Dave, here I am. He then cocked the pistol. He holstered it on his hip and gave one final warning. Don't you come across here with that watch. Tut did not reply but stood with his hand on his pistol. Both men faced each other sideways in the dueling position and hesitated briefly. Then Tut reached for his pistol first. Hickok drew his gun and steadied it on the opposite forearm, and the two men fired a single shot at each other at the essentially the same time. According to reports, Tut missed, but Hickok's bullet struck Tut in the left side between the fifth and seventh ribs. Tut called out, "'Boys, I'm killed!' ran on to the porch of the local courthouse, and then back to the street where he collapsed and died. The next day, a warrant was issued for Hickok's arrest. Two days later, he was arrested. Bail was denied, but eventually he posted a bail of $2,000, 33400 in today's terms. And they reduced the charge to manslaughter based on the circumstances. The trial for the manslaughter conviction began August 3, 1865 and lasted three days. 22 witnesses from the square testified, and Hickok claimed self-defense. The state fired back and said that it was mutual combat since he'd come to the square expecting a fight, and the jury decided that he was justified in shooting Tut. In fact, he was seen as being honorable for giving Tut several chances to avoid the conflict instead of shooting in the moment he felt he was shown disrespect. After it was all said and done, The story of this shootout was detailed in an article in Harper's Magazine in 1867, and that is what led to Wild Bill Hickok becoming a legend, like a household name at the time, Mm -hmm. and sort of inspiring all of those high noon western shootout things that we've seen. So essentially, it's the duel that vaulted Wild Bill to national fame. That tut was the same set of tuts from the Tut Everett King War in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. I hope that we did good for you, that you enjoyed learning a little bit about some famous feuds in history. Logan, I hope that that was what you wanted. We had a lot of fun researching this one. There's so many notes that I took that we didn't even get to use because we're we're over an hour at this point. So I hope that you enjoyed this little look into the bloody history of American feuds. And I hope that you're looking forward to what we've got coming for you next with my surprise episode that I'm going to be bringing out in a few days. And then, of course, learning more about Devil John Rot and various other things. We have some good plans for you coming up in the next little bit. And thank goodness we're about to be regular again. We're regular. We're normal.
yeah, you get it. So it's taken us a while to get back to where we can get in here every two weeks to bring you an episode, but I think that we've got it figured out now and everything is good. So we appreciate each of you. If you want to follow us on social media and you don't already, then shame on you. Shame. You can f- shame. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. We don't really do the Twitter. We need to do that. No, we need to do that, I guess, Twitter, but we don't. Twitters. So you can find us at History by Idiots. We have a Patreon page where we have an, an amazing group of people that support us in the show. That's patreon.com slash history by idiots. If you want to suggest some show topics for us, you can always email us at historybyidiots at gmail.com. With that being said, love history. Love your libraries. And love yourself. But not feuding because that's bad. Yeah, not feuding because that's bad.